I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Ann Foster. And today, because we are in our academic era lately, I'm talking with Dr. Jenny Nuttall, who is the author of Mother Tongue, The Surprising History of Women's Words. We're talking about linguistics. We're talking about feminism. We're talking about the meaning of words. And it was so fascinating, this conversation I had with her. And her book is so timely in interesting and fun ways, but in also kind of like sorts of ways. Because like we're living in an era where conservative politicians are really mad about like pronouns and inclusive language. And books like this one really show like every word was just invented by someone at some time. Like words, they have meaning and they have significance. But to be like, how dare language change? It's like it's always changing. It was such a fun conversation. I'll just let you know a bit about Jenny. So Dr. Jenny Nuttall is an academic who has been teaching and researching medieval literature at the University of Oxford for the last 20 years, and who has thus had a lot of practice at making old words interesting. She has a Doctor of Philosophy from Oxford and completed the University of East Anglia's Master's in Creative Writing. Mother Tongue is her first book for the general reader. I had such a good time talking with her. This book really, I don't know, the stuff that is in this book connects with what we've been talking about all along on this podcast. It really, um, as I mentioned, has a lot to do with some really, really annoying things that are happening lately with conservative politicians in multiple countries. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Jenny Nuttall. (laughs) 
So I'm joined today by Jenny Nettle. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. It's great to be asked to talk to you and your listeners. Yeah. So when I first saw what your book was about, um, so my book, it's a, it's feminist history, basically. And I'm, I'm always interested in language and words. And so your book is exactly the sort of thing we like to talk about. Actually, can you first just explain how do you describe your book to other people? What's, what's it about? So it's a, it's a history of women's words in English and particularly the kind of early history of women's words starting out in Old English and Medieval English into the 16th, 17th, 18th century. And I suppose that might then prompt the question, what do you mean by women's words? And I don't necessarily mean the words that women are using about themselves. I mean, I mean, sets of vocabulary that are being used to talk about parts of women's lives and experiences. And to partly to kind of find out what's going on in the early stages of that language, which words that we've got coming all the way from the deep past of English to now, and which words have got lost, and, and just to kind of look at sets of vocabulary for women's bodies, the work they do, things like menstruation and pregnancy and words for different stages of women's lives. So yeah, just just a kind of a reaching back into the past for, for each of those sets of vocabulary to kind of see what's there and why. There are a number of words that you talk about in your book that I think have particular resonances for, for this podcast and phrases that, that come up here. And one of them is you talk about the different words and how it's developed in the English language to talk about breasts. And you say in your book, the tit is the least worst of memory words. That's in your opinion. <laughs> Can you talk about the development of the word, just the words that mean breasts, how, how that word has developed in English language? Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I mean, the book is full of kind of subjective opinions like that. It's me kind of looking at language from my position in language of as a speaker of a certain kind of British English who grew up in a certain sort of culture, kind of testing out words. In in old English, you have words like breost, obviously, and tit. These words that come through into into modern English. But I was sort of interested, particularly in how changing ideas of register kind of join in so if you you know you might say I'm if you're going to the doctor you know I have a problem with my breast but it's it I it's if it, some of these words end up with a more kind of formal sense and I'm interested in in finding out a set of kind of synonyms and if you reach into the past you can get those synonyms so you have breost and tit you have a word like pat uh, which start that even though we might think of that as a word for baby food it starts off as a word for the the breast um, and, and that's where the connection with kind of babies eating comes in and then you get um you have to name parts of the breast the the forward tit uh the the pap head the, the and eventually in the 16th century you get nipple coming in so it's just sort of i think reaching back into the past allows you to kind of play around with choices as well what what if we'd ended up with that one and not this word and and um particularly my kind of British English, is, is a good sort of plain spoken, we, you might say it's as cold as a witch's tit if you were trying to explain how kind of freezing cold it was one morning. So I was interested that that word is there back in the past. It's not just a kind of slang word. And it's part of 
this phase of English where you often have several synonyms of kind of vaguely similar registers. You don't quite get that stratification of kind of polite words and and impolite words that you get later on. Well, and talking about female body parts as well, this, you, you have a whole chapter that's about kind of female reproductive body parts and the, the words used for them. But even just the word vagina was very interesting to me how you talk about just the various medical textbooks, mostly written by men, and which terms ended up kind of catching on and which didn't. Like the word vagina, you well, you could describe, it's, it has to do with a sword and a sheath, right? Yeah, it, it's used in Latin treaties describing some of the new findings of, of um, anatomical dissection when that, when that kind of gets going in a big way in the, in the 16th century. And it's just in there really as an analogy, you know, this body part to, to describe it. So if you're an anatomist for your readers, you will want to describe for your readers who haven't kind of been there and seen a dead body, but will want to kind of, I mean, they will, they will know it in their own lives, but you're trying to kind of describe it. And it vagina, yeah, it's just that word for sheath or scabbard of a sword. And it's to describe a kind of reciprocal function, you know, as a, as a sword goes into a scabbard. And, and it's not really presented even as a new technical term, I don't think. But, but somehow it has, gets kind of pulled out and becomes the standard term and before that things that things have been a bit vaguer in a way so you have wound gates or kind of ports or or wickets but it's interesting that to me that it's it's very sexist that idea of it that it that it what the vagina is 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 the thing in relation to the male and anatomy but but that's quite a late idea and it's a quite it's quite an accidental idea which is not to say that the whole history of these textbooks isn't full of kind of misogyny but often often you can kind of find surprises in the histories of these words and every time I kind of thought I knew something when I was setting off to research each chapter I would suddenly think oh that's that's a much stranger story than I thought it was and then behind that there were there were other words and and it can make it you know which are we describing whose perspective are we describing this body part from and and the the 16th century writers who are interested in opening up discussions of of childbirth and pregnancy and kind of communicating that to women readers in English are using a different set of words. They're they're not using vagina to start off with. They're talking about kind of gates and doorways and passages. Um, it's still metaphorical, but it's a different set of metaphors. Can you talk about the thing with nymphs in regards to female anatomy? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and that that that's coming out of you know ancient classical Greek medical treaties and that writing as it's kind of being translated into different languages are coming across. But it's it's one of the again, it's a little bit hazy. Some of these male writers are not very good at kind of accurate descriptions of of that part of women's anatomy. And you know, like as we do these days with technical terms, people kind of muddle things up and overlap things. But yeah, the an, an early alternative name for what we would call the the labia is is nymph, and it's it's where later on that idea of kind of nymphomania comes from. But that's a, that's a much later coinage, and here it's it's just part of again this this slightly kind of flowery. Rather, I wasn't expecting the language of Renaissance anatomists to be quite so wonderful, and and particularly those the English writers who are taking these Latin findings and kind of bringing them across into English for a kind of popular audience. And they, yeah, they, labia, lip, 
because it looks like you know there is a comparison there with the lips of the mouse or actually the the edges of a wound which perhaps seems a bit more of a, a kind of sexist idea but even though nymphs is is rather flowering it's explained in this lovely way that just like nymphs in myth- mythology guard fountains here are the kind of nymphs down by your waterworks that might be a, a way to to say it but you know again why isn't it nice to have these sets of alternatives to kind of play around with that come out of these kind of early Englishes well and then some I think that was one of the many examples in your book, but when you learn about what the words used to mean and you look at some of these old writings, you, st- you talk a lot about Geoffrey Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales or even some Shakespeare sonnets. You're like, oh, this is like a lot more sexual than I had realized. Just because you see a word like nymphs, you're like, okay, nymphs. But then to them, it had this very specific connotation that makes it like actually extremely sexual, where to us, it seems more like, oh, that's sort of a metaphor he's doing. Yeah, and kind of wings and then, the you know, because they're very good at using this it's not very sort of super accurate but there is a kind of lovely metaphorical language for all this stuff and and again you it's not quite as as sort of misogynist or sexist there, there are strands of that kind of thinking all the way through the periods i'm interested in but there are also much more appreciative descriptions of kind of women's body parts you know in in these uh, anatomical treatises and in uh there's a wonderful text called the woman's book written in the in the middle of the 16th century to, to talk to readers about pregnancy and gestation and then yes in in the kind of the the punning literary text if you if you understand this early set of vocabulary you can see that that the past isn't simply ashamed to talk i mean they are called the pugent they are sometimes called parts that are to do with shame but not always they always have a kind of a multifaceted identity and you can find that if you look at different different words and what i found really interesting about your book as well is that every time you're looking at one of these words and how it's used it explains sort of how how that was seen in society like what it means to history so as an example so like use of the word hysterical, you talk about where that comes from. And I had sort of, I'd heard before about the sort of idea of the wandering womb and stuff, but you you sort of dive into that and like, where did the word come from? Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, it's, yeah. The, the words as ways to write almost kind of paragraph by paragraph, little kind of mini, it's not structured like something like Raymond Williams's keywords say, where you have kind of separate chapters, but, but each time I got to a word I wanted to unpack it and yeah there's there's another example of something that perhaps feminist history might hold up and say look isn't hasn't the history of the word hysteria been been such a kind of long history of sexism and that's true but it but it's slightly more complicated than that so we we don't get hysterical in English until the beginning of the the 17th century and we don't get hysteria in English till midway through the 18th century and that's because that diagnosis and the the kind of groups of symptoms and the ways of thinking that, that fit around those words change change quite a lot so Plato might suggest that the womb is wandering, but m- even early on, medical writers and writers who know their anatomy are going, no, that's completely impossible. We can see it kind of tethered by ligaments. What are you talking about? So there's a kind of complicated story there. And is is the thing that 
people are describing early on something that gets called the suffocation of the mother. So a, a, a more physical idea that, that, that things can go wrong with the womb and make the rest of you feel very unwell. And, you know, I can think of various modern complaints where that might seem a perfectly kind of reasonable idea. And it it doesn't necessarily always have quite the kind of misogynist connections with the idea that women are kind of crazy and their wombs are wandering around that those come and go in history so in the 17th and 18th century people are able to say oh the the thing we call melancholic or or kind of these nerve disorders in men is it is it's the same thing in women but we give it a different name and that there's a much um, more nuanced understanding of of these terms and then it's it's only quite late on. Um, one of the scholars calls it a kind of great forgetting, the eclipsing of that more complicated history in the 19th century, where you get a bit more of that that familiar cliche of the kind of hysterical woman and it all comes together. But but I was so interested that you can't even, you would think hysteria would be the easiest word to trace back as an as a wooden idea deep deep into kind of the history of medicine and and it is you know and I I one of the things I wanted to do a little bit in the book as well as writing a a very feminist book that was kind of standing up for women in the past and kind of highlighting sex in the past but I also wanted to make the the feminist history really accurate and really nuanced to say look you know there are all those ideas we kind of grow up with as baby feminists, but but they're always generally a kind of simplified version of of a more interesting narrative, you know. And the, and the first use of hysterical in English is used to say that a woman might be hysterical, might not therefore be a witch or influenced by witchcraft. So, so that you know, it's it's there as a kind of useful medical. <laughs> medical idea no don't 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 decide she's a witch actually she may have this kind of long held diagnosis of of the suffocation of the mother and we might call that hysterical and then it comes into English so the I was interested in sort of balancing up moments in the past where you have a kind of more enlightened way of thinking about things versus our sense of the kind of sexism of the the past and that's all there in in the history of hysteria and it's really interesting too in so many of the words you talk about in your book and how it really made me think about the power of words. Like we're seeing it so strongly these days right now with people getting upset about pronouns or describing people as a woman or describing as like people who menstruate and people like the power and just the way that words reflect a societal view, I guess. It's more clear to me now because of some of these debates than maybe it would have been a couple of years ago. And you do mention that in your book. It's a history of women's words, but you do talk about the the use of the word woman versus the use of the word like people with a uterus and things like that. Can you expand upon how you talk about that in the book? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned it just at the end. And I think it was it was one of sort of watching those debates play out was one of the look, several things came together in the writing of this book. But I was sort of suddenly more conscious of of the vocabularies that were being kind of changed or a place to do with things like menstruation or, or pregnancy and it made me interested in all of those words it's something I'm still kind of working my way through as an idea that the kind of balance between including and acknowledging 
and I, I talk about this in the introduction a little bit, that there will be people who who wouldn't categorize themselves as women, but will need and use a lot of the kind of sets of vocabulary I'm interested in the book. So that's exactly right. But it is interesting to see the the kind of unintended perhaps consequence of that, which is to see a word like woman disappearing out not 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 in a kind of it's not that we can't say it anymore, but in certain types of public health messaging or a certain way of writing a journal article about something that the the words words like women and women and girls might might be sort of circumvented, kind of written out somehow. And that that's quite significant in a way. So so I was interested in not really trying to solve those questions, but thinking about that, as you say, the the kind of the way in which culture and language interact with each other and 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 how even even those those usage choices there re- reflect these kind of tricky tricky balances that we're we're trying to do the you know i i i could see both at the same time the women's all sorts of issues relating to women and their lives and experiences are are being represented and articulated at the same time as we're sort of changing or or needing also to do something else at the same time with that language so it's a kind of interesting space to be thinking about but i i think what i'm really doing if i'm honest is kind of retreating to the past and saying right you know (laughs) there's all this going on but let's go back and kind of see what's nearer nearer the source the, the the origins of english yeah so it just sort of frames the book i think Well, no, exactly. And it's more you use it in the book as an example of how words have power, how words interact with the society. Your book is very much, as you described it at the beginning of this interview, how were things about women written in the past? But another weird way, and I say weird, just kind of unexpected, but also kind of distressing that um, some of this terminology is interacting with our current world, as you do mention in the book about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, which is using some, to me, quite obscure language about menstruation and about um, fetal development. Can you talk about that for a bit? And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you wouldn't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now, but also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. 
Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And we're back. Yeah, I was, again, it's one of those patterns where th- things become much more kind of fixed and regulated later on in the story. And, and going earlier on in, in history and earlier on in language lets you see a kind of picture where where more uncertainty is possible. So some of the debates, the legal debates that have been going on in the courts, as far as I understand it, go go back to kind of precedence. And, and one of the issues there is is what what does a, a say a seventeenth or yeah seventeenth or eighteenth century writer mean by quickening? Say the moment where the baby moves in the womb. What do they mean by misprision? What do they mean by fairly kind of how are they positioning? abortion and again a bit like the the history of hysteria where it where it's quite easy to get the kind of wrong end of the stick and simplify history telling the story of of the the early history of how which kinds of abortion are prosecuted and why and when is is took an awful lot of research it's not a kind of hugely heavily footnoted book, but there's a lot going on under the surface. I read, I read and read for each of these chapters to try and kind of get the story straight. And and the the earliest prosecutions are to do with people, women, pregnant women being injured and and having what we we might think of as a miscarriage. And there's quite a long. Then it's recognised that 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 doesn't really work because it's very difficult to to kind of know the the legal personhood status of the of the kind of fetus in the womb. And the, and the what you see is that there's an understanding that this is very much a kind of woman-centered knowledge, as it were. You know, this is before our world of kind of scans and dates and everything. The the kind of the the moment of quickening is something that you know sort of inside out and that the the law and society is is not so easily going to be able to kind of intervene in and kind of make pronouncements about. And that there's a real um, caution and, and recognition of doubt in, in some of the early writings about, you know, when can we say this is a crime and when can we say the, the fetus has a soul? And it, so it's so interesting to see some of the kind of legal debate, which appears to be so certain that the past agrees with you on something where it, it, it's a much more complicated story, um, even coming down to kind of what does that writer mean by that word, I think. Yeah, it's. I think it's so useful and so important to have a book like yours that looks 
that explains how the same word has meant different things through the years. So for somebody today to see that word and be like, well, for sure it means this, where people in all different cultures and contexts were using it in different ways. So it's language is so fluid. And I think that's important for people to recognize. Yeah. And that's sort of underpinning some of the arguments that people are having today. I, I keep wanting to kind of do the most simple kind of linguistics media lecture and say there's this thing called polysemy. We recognize that one word can have several related meanings, um, but but then you need to look at usage and context and try and, and kind of work out which is going on. And, and it might be that I was quite keen not, this is not simply a book of kind of definitions of things, because defining the idea that words have a kind of, that either history or semantics will give you a kind of core, central, stable meaning. That's not how it works. It, it's always, as you say, a kind of different different parts of society using words slightly differently and kind of contested meanings. And even this very weird thing that language does, which is to have kind of, you know, you can think of a word like wench, which can mean both, a, both a, it, it can be used just straightforwardly for, for a, a young woman of a certain type of social status, but then also has a pejorative meaning. And the, the two kind of sit alongside and even when you're reading Shakespeare you're you're thinking okay which, they, they do relate to each other it's not accidental that they have a, a kind of related meaning but it but there will always be a sense of kind of negotiation through meaning yeah certainly even where we keep words to do with abortion words to do with miscarriage separate now as as we absolutely should and that those are much more overlapping and intertwined and complicated in the past and again it makes the legal history of this somewhere where you you can't just jump back in and kind of grab a phrase and say that's what that means yeah and I was just gonna say that's that's part of why it just seems preposterous to me to be making a legal decision now saying well in 1642 they said this where it's like well <laughs> a lot of context has changed since then yes and and bad scholarship too I think she's Carla Spivak, if I'm name right, she's written a very good article about the the kind of complexity of the early history of of the been you know some really good history research and and it and it it's really sort of the worst kind of cherry picking to kind of cite Hale or someone like that without kind of looking at you know because those legal writings are are sort of processing the the sort of stuff I'm particularly interested in the the kind of medieval early early modern history of some of the ideas they're, they're just looking at kind of descriptions of cases in law books and thinking you know, like we are kind of what does what does that mean how should we understand it well and even a definition this one also after I read your book I was talking to my friend and I kept giving my friend examples I'm like did you know this and did you know this it was a sort of book where I just enjoyed learning so many facts but one that I found interesting is hoping you can talk about is the word husband and how it relates to the word housewife and how those interact with each other yeah, the, um, and even even now, I don't think that the the sort of connotations of housewife and the connotations of husband, which you can see, are kind of related. Obviously, we have husband and wife, and yeah, I mean, coming back in origin to the the sort of in most circumstances, the two people, the the man and the woman, who are running the domestic economy of a of a house, some kind of whether that's a kind of little house or a kind of bigger unit, but that that kind of domestic family unit so husband we would recognize a word like husband husbandry there's that funny phrase animal husbandry which means the kind of looking after of 
of farm animals very well. And and that word husbandry and housewifery, the thing that housewives do, so the weaver, the hoose, the the bondman, the 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 kind of retained worker who's living in a house. Not not a kind of equal status, and they don't mean the same thing, but they mean the kind of the related activities that has to do with the running of the household, but but more in the sense of the the kind of economic functioning, as it were, getting the stuff you need to live and running running a a household. It, it's funny then that housewifery eventually becomes reduced to you know cleaning and cooking and these these more domestic things but it it used to have a much broader meaning a kind of equivalent to husbandry to do with the kind of the the skill and knowledge and and power you know social power needed to kind of not just a, generally a household, it might be a very small household or two, but but as everyone will know, you know, in, earlier on in history, kind of bigger households with servants, with children, you know, to, to run those things. And you you even find men in the Paston letters, those medieval letters sort of saying, oh, if you get a really good deal on some complicated sort of wood bargaining interaction ah you're being great housewife they say to one another because it's got these kind of connotations of of being part of a of a kind of a, a system of, of kind of finance and economy it, and without the kind of separate the separate spheres obviously comes along a lot later and kind of starts to push these words in different directions but yeah you can think of husbandry and housewifery who's bond who's wife as the 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 kind of pair at the start. Well, and that's that's so fascinating to me. I'd never heard any of that until I read your book. And just the current context, there's people who, you know, who want, you know, quote unquote, a return to the role of the housewife or a traditional housewife. And it's like, well, if we were doing that, then if we're actually going back to the traditional housewife, then what you were just saying, it's like household management. It's yeah. Yeah. And a bit, maybe a bit closer to, to the sort of trad wives who are, who are monetizing the business, you know, who are making a lot of money out of it. Because the idea, you know, that's, that's what all of this early language acknowledges, that there's a lot of kind of um, economy, even, even, even economy goes back to the idea of kind of household in the Greek and these these housewiferies, Marjorie Kemp, that wonderful medieval mystic and traveller, writes in her book about at the start about how she's going to try a, a new housewifery, a kind of new housewifery. And you think, oh, I wonder what what that is. And it involves a mill and a horse and an employee and all sorts of things. So so housewifery, yeah, I, you know, to, the the travelers gang need to kind of somehow recognize that that um housewives are the you do see the beat i mean there are certainly kind of gender segregated employments and w- within household kind of gender segregated tasks but but there is definitely a kind of recognition of the importance of things like kind of bargaining money management supplies all of those those things no they're they're certainly not decorative these or, or kind of limited in what they do. Caxton has a lovely dialogue showing people how to kind of do certain kinds of public speaking. And one of the the examples is is a housewife in a market out in public, kind of bandying with all the stallholders and kind of getting the best deal. It, it's that's a housewife is a kind of larger than life person. <laughs> the odd in history, I like. Uh, and just as a 
as a final question, um, just because the name of this podcast is Vulgar History, and I did choose it because of the several meanings of the word vulgar. Can you, you do, you mentioned in your book, I, I was really excited that he talked about English um, as a, as the vulgar tongue. Can you explain that meaning of the word? Yeah, it, and comes to the idea that the sort of the the tongue of the common people, vulgus, and that it's it's there in that idea of the word vernacular too. That this is the the language that most people speak in a nation, but not necessarily the language earlier on in in English's history of education or of science of knowledge or law things like that, and often associated with women, partly because they're, well, predominantly because they're excluded in a patriarchal society from some of those spheres in which other languages, Latin and French, are used. But it, the, the vulgar tongue as the language of the home and education, your, your kind of first language, which, you know, often women are, are understood as the kind of first teachers of your language as you grow up as a child and even when we get to the point of the first dictionaries being created for for English on it on its own they say in their prefaces you know these might be useful for women who who will need to get a spin sometimes it's a bit of a kind of marketing spin because because then you don't have to say and actually we know all the chaps whose Latin and French is not very good at the moment might, might find Oh, haven't got the kind of levels and education needed to kind of decode some of these words. But I was interested. Yeah, I, you know, the, the, that question, feminist linguistics. You, you know, are, are we sort of excluded from this language despite ourselves somehow? Is 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 it always going to be the kind of the oppressor's language somehow? Not quite. If you go back in the past, it, it's had lots of associations with women in, in terms of teaching English and good speech and bad speech, you know, the, the gossipy speech and kind of uncontrolled speech and speech outside of of institutions and establishments, but also a kind of a speech that, that because it's outside of those things, this is what I found so much as I was writing, is so so kind of wild and unruly and surprising and kind of thinks on its feet. So I yeah, I like the idea of the it, it is a kind of a, a, I wanted to have both the, the the history of the the kind of language that men used about women, but where I could find it, I wanted to find that kind of vulgar history. There's there's not much straight from the horse's mouth, but there are ways to kind of get back to it. When when say in the Renaissance, physicians are writing for women, you start to kind of find some of these these words that are not formal. What what Ursula um, Green. Le Guin calls the father's language, not the father's language, but what she calls the mother, the mother tongue. Um, and that's why the, the book kind of has that that name in a way, because I liked all those things coming together. And also just in the sense of, you know, the writing for the common people or the general public, the book, I think, is very much written for an everyday audience. You don't need to be a historian of linguistics to enjoy your book. And I assume that was your intention, because that's how it comes across. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, written much more in the the voice I kind of teach it that, that was really fun so to try and be funny and to try and explain things and and I was I yeah I wanted it was kind of interesting to write because I wanted to explain a lot and I didn't 
you know, as we've been talking about with hysteria or what I didn't, or which, you know, the history of witchcraft say, I didn't just want to kind of give the kind of easy, well-known version. I mean, I wanted it to be as, as kind of up-to-date and scholarly in its knowledge, but in its tone and in its writing, I wanted it to be like, you know, midway through a tutorial in Oxford when I've kind of lost the plot a bit and I'm just kind of talking about the stuff I'm interested in and I'm I'm from rather kind of humble common background really and I just talk in the in the kind of words that seem kind of clearest and most expressive and I make a lot of jokes when I teach and it was it was so wonderful to to have the opportunity to to write a book like this and um and have editors and 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 presses that were could see the value of that that kind of balance between the the very kind of accurate informed stuff that's going on in there but but expressed in a way that that hopefully was was just really kind of joyful and clear and kind of easy to get in and out of I think I'm sure anyone listening to this can hear your passion and your joy for talking about this subject matter and I think it's great when someone is when someone is so finds so much delight in talking about a subject to to read a book that person has written just makes it more fun to read because it's you're not just you can tell how much fun you had putting this together yes yes even even in the middle of a global pandemic in quite trying circumstances but yeah the the book is um and I didn't I mean you, you must feel this this too that you don't want to kind of simply scold the past and tell the past off for being not as progressive as we are I wanted to you know that because I teach this really ancient you know old English medieval English students pitch up thinking oh no what but you know that I, I wanted to kind of to show how much fun you could have with it definitely and yeah and I, I like the idea of, you know people have said that to me this is sort of book that you're reading and then you're kind of annoying the person next to you but like can I can I just tell you this thing that I've just read no, exactly. I have one of my coworkers, I get uh, a ride home from work some days with her. And I spent the whole commute just being like, and this? And did you know the history of the word husband? And did you know the history of the word vagina? I was just like, this, this, like, I couldn't stop telling her all these fun facts. So yeah, it's 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 that sort of book, definitely. So when this podcast comes out, the book will have just been published, I believe, in in North America, as well as, is it already out in the UK? Or is it coming out everywhere all at the same time? No, it's it's already been out. So I have two different publishers. It's come out with Virago, that great feminist press, and it came out in at the end of May in the the UK. But yeah, Viking in the states at the end of August. They, I've ended up with sort of two different dates, but it's quite nice. It, it spreads the fun. Well, it keeps it going for you, so you can keep talking about it with different people. So I wanted to ask: so if listeners are interested in you and your work, do you have any? I don't know, do you have a, a website or are you on social media or anything where people can just see what you're doing? Yes, I'm on um, Twitter. I, d I didn't get the memo that you should have a really easy to explain Twitter handle. I was just kind of somewhere else when that happened. So you can search for my name, but my Twitter handle is stylisticien, which is just impossible. It's it's kind of sh she who studies stylistics in French. And I have a website, but the, the website is rather... Um, before I started doing this, I was writing a lot about kind of medieval poetry in its form. So the website is is mostly that. But I think the dying wastelands of Twitter are currently the best place to find me and maybe <laughs> somewhere else if it, if it just falls over completely. That's what's interesting about recording these a bit earlier. Like if Twitter still exists when this episode comes out, 
<laughs> that's where you'll be. But it's good. I'll put all the links to to your website and everything in the show notes so people can can track you down as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this. Like, as I said, when I heard about your book, I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And then I read your book and I thought, oh, I really hope I get a chance to talk to Jenny about this because it just sounds like exactly the sort of thing that I think the listeners are so interested in. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Well, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to talk. So again, this wonderful book now available in North America and also other places, I assume, is called Mother Tongue and the Surprising History of Women's Words by Jenny Nuttall. And my name is Ann Foster, and this is Vulgar History, feminist women's history comedy podcast. Sometimes I do interviews with authors like this. Sometimes it's just me talking. Sometimes it's me with a special guest. You never know what you're going to get with this podcast. And that's how it is going to always be. So, you know, get on board. That's what I'm doing. Anyway, so you can keep up with me in this podcast at like, God knows, social media, like what is even happening? I am most active on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod. That's where you can find me. But if you're using another social media thing, like threads or blue sky or whatever, like whatever, like look at vulgar history. I'm probably there. And if I start seeing there's a lot of people there to interact with, maybe I'll start being there more. But at this point, Instagram is where you can find me mostly. And you can also get in touch with me. I'm always excited. If you have a book to recommend, an author you think you'd like me to talk to, or just honestly a book you think I'd like to read, you can reach out to me in my DMs or also if you go to vulgarhistory.com, there's a contact form there, or you can also email me at vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. I have merch available two different places if you're in the US. What tends to work best is if you go to vulgarhistory.com slash store, or if you're outside the US, shipping is better if you use the Redbubble store, which is vulgarhistory.redbubble.com. You know, in many places, we're getting ready for back to school season, which I personally think is a good time to get a sticker or a t-shirt that says scholarly and rambling, which is a thing that I was once accused of being. And you can get that at the merch store. Anyway, you can also support the podcast on Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash Foster and if you just give like donate some money every month, then you get different levels of bonus stuff. So if you join the Patreon for at least $1 a month, then you get early ad-free access to all the episodes, including older episodes. And if you pledge at least $5 or more a month, then you get access to the ad-free episodes, as well as bonus episodes. You can hear my episodes of So This Asshole, where I just read Men for Filth, the horrible men from history. We also have Vulgar Peace Theater, which are like three hour long episodes I do with my friends Lana and Allison, where we talk about costume dramas. And most recently, in terms of Patreon, there's also a Discord. So for everyone who joins at the $5 or more level at Patreon, uh, you get to join our The Vulgar History Salon, which is a Discord, which is basically just like a big group chat lately. And I don't know if it'll finish by the time you have this episode, but uh, one of our Patreon members, Miguel, has been running a sim that's like, what if some of the greatest heroines of vulgar history were playing the tv reality show survivor and who would win and it's just been a really fun time anyway so you get access to all of that if you join the patreon patreon.com slash ann foster writer i do want to mention that if and when i get to 500 members of the patreon i will do a so this asshole episode on john knox but because that'll emotionally take a lot out of me you know i need to be persuaded Anyway, I think that's everything. Next week, we're going to be back with a finale of the Mary Queen of Scots season. And I'll give you an update of what to expect next from this podcast. So that's all coming up next week. And until then, everybody, keep your pants on and your tits out. 
Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.